Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella, and concerts by the CSO on Thursday, March 16th through Saturday the 18th feature guest conductor Osmo Venska. The program includes three vocal soloists, the Chicago Symphony Chorus, and the Uniting Voices of Chicago. The program includes Jesse Montgomery's Banner, Ainu Johanni Rautavara's Cantus Octicus, and after intermission, Karl Ors' Carmina Burana. And here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Jesse Montgomery's Banner for String Quartet and Chamber Orchestra. The work lasts about eight minutes. Music is my connection to the world, Jesse Montgomery, our Mead composer in residence, has said. It guides me to understand my place in relation to others and challenges me to make clear the things I do not understand. Jesse Montgomery is a native of the Lower East Side of New York City. The arts were part of her daily family life. She remembers practicing violin in one room while her father, Edward Montgomery, was busy composing in another, and her mother, Robbie McCauley, a performance artist, director, and writer, was rehearsing in yet another space. Growing up as an artist in that world, Montgomery says she was always in a state of wonder. She was also accustomed to having many different cultures in her friend group. She started violin lessons at the Third Street Music School Settlement and now holds degrees from the Juilliard School in violin and New York University, a master's in composition for film and multimedia, and is completing her doctorate from Princeton University. Since 1999, she's been closely involved with Sphinx, a Detroit-based nonprofit organization that supports young African-American and Latino string players. And in recent years, she's made time to continue appearing with Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble. As Mead composer-in-residence since 2021, Montgomery has been commissioned to write three new works for the orchestra, one for each of her three seasons in the post. Hymn for Everyone, the first, was given its premiere on April 28, 2022, conducted by Ricardo Muti, who will introduce her second work with the Chicago Symphony in May. Like her immediate predecessors as resident composers in Chicago, Montgomery guides the orchestra's Music Now series, curating its programs of new works and writing music for its concerts as well. In 2020, she was one of three black composers named to the Metropolitan Opera Lincoln Center Theater New Works Commissioning Program. The significance of her emergence in today's cultural climate, especially heightened in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter movement, and the responsibilities it carries are not lost on Montgomery. We have to take into account that we're carrying a history inside of our beings and in the work that we do, she has said. In Montgomery's hands, Banner is an exploration of the divides that slice through American culture. Montgomery's career echoes what her late mother, whose work often dealt with issues of race, once said, find a way to house the contradictions rather than resolve them. Montgomery makes art that is firmly set in the present, which would not be notable today in theater or fiction, for example, but stands out in the world of classical music, which has for so long lived largely in the European past. But Montgomery's music suggests that she not only possesses the rare gift of writing music that reflects the complexity of our world, but also one that will lead us forward.
By already forging her own distinct voice in a crowded musical scene, a voice that melds and marries many different influences, she is well positioned to help guide the music of our multifaceted future. I've always been interested in trying to find the intersection between different types of music, she has said. I imagine that music is a meeting place at which all people can converse about their unique differences and common stories. And here is Jessie Montgomery herself on Banner. Banner is a tribute to the 200th anniversary of the Star Spangled Banner, which was officially declared the American National Anthem in 1814 under the penmanship of Francis Scott Key. Scored for solo string quartet and string orchestra, Banner is a rhapsody on the theme of the Star Spangled Banner. Drawing on musical and historical sources from various world anthems and patriotic songs, I've made an attempt to answer the question, what does an anthem for the 21st century sound like in today's multicultural environment? In 2009, I was commissioned by the Providence String Quartet and Community Music Works to write Anthem, a tribute to the historical election of Barack Obama. In that piece, I wove together the theme from the Star-Spangled Banner with the commonly named Black National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson to music by younger brother John Rosamond Johnson, which coincidentally shared the exact same phrase structure. Banner picks up where Anthem left off by using a similar backbone source in its middle section, but expands further both in the number of references and also in the role played by the string quartet as the individual voice working both with and against the larger community of the orchestra behind them. The structure is loosely based on traditional marching band form, where there are several strains or contrasting sections preceded by an introduction, and I have drawn on the drumline chorus as a source for the rhythmic underpinning in the finale. Within the same tradition, I have attempted to evoke the breathing of a large brass choir as it approaches the climax of the trio section. A variety of other cultural anthems and American folk songs and popular idioms interact to form various textures in the finale section, contributing to a multi-layered fanfare. The Star-Spangled Banner is an ideal subject for exploration in contradictions. For most Americans, the song represents a paradigm of liberty and solidarity against fierce odds, and for others, it implies a contradiction between the ideals of freedom and the realities of injustice and oppression. As a culture, it is my opinion that we Americans are perpetually in search of ways to express and celebrate our ideals of freedom, a way to proclaim we've made it, as if the very action of saying it aloud makes it so. And for many of our nation's people, this was the case. Through work songs and spirituals, enslaved Africans promised themselves a way out and built up the nerve to endure the most abominable treatment for the promise of a free life. Immigrants from Europe, Central America, and the Pacific have sought out a safe haven here, and though met with the trials of building a multicultural democracy, continue to find rooting in our nation and make significant contributions to our cultural landscape. In 2014, a tribute to the U.S. national anthem means acknowledging the contradictions, leaps and bounds, and milestones that allow us to celebrate and maintain the tradition of our ideals. Words by Jesse Montgomery and program notes by Philip Husher on Jesse Montgomery's 
banner. And now on to Aino Johanni Rautavara's Cantus Arcticus, a concerto for birds and orchestra lasting about 19 minutes. Aino Johanni Rautavara was the first Finnish composer to command world attention after Sibelius early in the 20th century. For many years, he was a low-profile figure whose name was barely known outside his native land. Rautavara was born into a musical family. His father was an opera singer and cantor. He studied musicology at the University of Helsinki and composition at the Sibelius Academy. It was the 90-year-old Sibelius, in fact, who selected him for a Kusevitsky Foundation grant to study in the United States. In 1955, Rautavara came to this country and worked with Vincent Persichetti at the Juilliard School and with Roger Sessions and Aaron Copeland at the Tanglewood Music Center. After he returned to Finland, Rautavara taught at the Sibelius Academy. Although Rautavara's music was regularly performed at home and had won several awards, his popularity was largely limited to Finland until the 1990s, when he became a kind of cult figure, both throughout Europe and the United States. Although his works aren't overtly religious, their spiritual and contemplative nature conveyed in highly tonal music of simplicity and atmospheric beauty began to attract a wide following, particularly from listeners drawn to the suddenly fashionable music of such composers as Arvo Pert and Henrik Goretzky. Rautavara also has unwittingly cashed in on a rising fascination with angels, which he anticipated by more than a decade. His own interest in the dark and powerful force of angels was inspired by a childhood dream and by a cloud formation in the shape of an angel that he saw many years later from an airplane window. This obsession, they repeat in my mind like a mantra that radiates musical energy, he says, has influenced much of his output, beginning with Angels and Visitations in 1978. The last manifestation was his seventh symphony, subtitled Angel of Light, composed in 1994. Rautavara's music has evolved over his long career from neoclassicism through serialism to his own idiosyncratic language. He has fashioned something distinctive and personal of the Sibelius legacy he inherited, but called himself a romantic composer. A romantic has no coordinates. In time, he is in yesterday or tomorrow, but never in today. When Rautavara died in 2016, he left a large body of work, eight symphonies, nine operas, and a dozen concertos, along with many chamber, choral, and orchestral scores. Cantus Arcticus, an early work dating from 1972, incorporates field recordings and improvisatory gestures. It remains his most frequently performed piece. At the top of the score, Rautavara gives the musicians this direction, Think of Autumn and Tchaikovsky. And here is Aino Johanni Rautavara himself on Cantus Arcticus. The Cantus Arcticus was commissioned by the Arctic University of Aulu for its degree ceremony. Instead of the conventional festive cantata for choir and orchestra, I wrote a concerto for birds and orchestra. The bird sounds were taped in the Arctic Circle and the marshlands of Liminka, a municipality in the former province of Olo in northern Finland. The first movement, Bog, opens with two solo flutes. They are gradually joined by other wind instruments and the sounds of bog birds in spring. 
Finally, the strings enter with a broad melody that might be interpreted as the voice and mood of a person walking in the wilds. In Melancholy, the featured bird is a shore lark. Its twitter has been brought down by two octaves to make it a ghost bird. Swans migrating is an allegatory texture of four independent instrumental groups. The texture constantly increases in complexity, and the sounds of the migrating swans are multiplied too until finally the sound is lost in the distance. Words by Ainuhani Rautavara himself and program notes by Philip Husher on Ainuhani Rautavara's Cantus Arcticus. And now on to Carmina Burana by Karl Orff. The work lasts about one hour. When Carmina Burana made him an overnight celebrity at the age of 42, Karl Orff decided to start his career over from scratch. Immediately after the premiere in 1937, he wrote to the Schott Company in Munich, which had been his publisher for a full decade, everything I have written to date and which you have, unfortunately printed, can be destroyed. With Carmina Burana, my collected works begin. Before the premiere of Carmina Burana in 1937, Orff's career had proceeded nicely, if routinely, on track. His infatuation with music began at an early age. He took music lessons and composed songs as a young child, and at the age of four, he became enchanted with the theater during a traditional Punch and Judy show. He was essentially self-taught. At 14, he heard his first opera, Wagner's The Flying Dutchman. It started an avalanche, as Orff later recalled. The young composer's grandfather kept a notebook in which he recorded the progress of Carl's musical education, Wagner's entire ring cycle and Tristan and Isolde, the principal Mozart operas, Strauss's Zalame and Elektra. By the age of 17, Orff had composed some 60 songs which revealed the unmistakable influence of Debussy and early Schoenberg. He was particularly taken with Schoenberg's five pieces for orchestra, and he made a piano duet arrangement of his chamber symphony. Orff's interests were wide. He studied the great Renaissance and Baroque masters, as well as African music, and he eventually composed in a number of forms. The catalog he asked Schott to destroy in 1937 included an operatic treatment of the Japanese play Terracoya, a symphony based on poetry of Maurice Maeterlinck, and choral settings of texts by Franz Werfel, Orff's favorite writer, and Bertolt Brecht. Carmina Borana marked a shift in direction. It was Orff's first attempt at total theater, a combination of music, word, movement, and visual spectacular, and his earliest essay in a potent and accessible musical style designed to engage listeners who had lost their way in the complexities of 20th century music, although it was Orff more than anyone who found his way as a result of the piece. The work was wildly popular at once, and its exceptional appeal has never waned. After Carmina Borana, Orff did not tamper with his formula. He composed virtually nothing but vocal works for the stage. Few are operas, in the traditional sense, that place a high value on simplicity of musical language and directness of expression. At its most extreme, as in Der Bern Aurin, composed in 1947, Orff's output hardly resembles music as we know it. Spoken word alternates with rhythmic chanting. Notated pitch is virtually non-existent. 
The life-changing idea of composing Carmina Burana began in a rare bookshop in Würzburg on Monday, Thursday, 1934, when Orff's eye fell upon a collection of medieval poems. The texts, most of them are in Latin, but a few, Middle High German and French, celebrate springtime, love, and the varied pleasures of a full, if self-indulgent, life. The tone, however, is dark, even bitter. The very first poem in the collection and the one Orff chose for his opening and closing chorus ends, Weep With Me. These songs, Orff was not aware that melodies for these texts also existed, had been preserved for centuries in the Benedict Beuren Monastery in the foothills of the Bavarian Alps, 30 miles south of Munich, and in the early 19th century the manuscript was transferred to Munich. In 1847, selections were published by Johann Andreas Schmeller, the Munich court librarian. Schmeller also was a self-appointed censor. He omitted the raciest numbers. Schmeller's title, Carmina Burana, means Songs of Bavaria. Beuren, the site of the Benedictine monastery, is a variant of Bayern, the German name for Bavaria. It was Schmeller's edition that Orff picked up during an afternoon of fortuitous browsing. On opening the first page, Orff later remembered, I found the familiar image of Fortune with her wheel, and under it the lines, O Fortuna velut luna statu variabilis, O Fortune like the moon ever changing. Pictures and words seized hold of me that very day. He sketched the opening chorus with its great inexorable wheel of fate. Orff picked 24 poems, already imagining a stage piece with chorus and dancers, and with the help of poet Michael Hoffmann, he arranged a libretto. He composed the music quickly in a single burst of inspiration. Visitors to his Munich apartment recall the red-faced excitement with which he played finished numbers for them at the piano. The title page of Orff's Carmina Burana promises secular songs to be sung by singers and choruses to the accompaniment of instruments and also of magic pictures. Although the premiere at the Frankfurt Opera House was staged and costumed and magic pictures accompanied many early performances, Carmina Burana is best known today through concerts and recordings where the immediacy and physical excitement of Orff's music stand alone. Orff's score has sometimes been criticized for popularizing the musical style of Stravinsky's landmarks Oedipus Rex, and in particular, Les Nos. Orff was attracted to the most superficial aspects of those Stravinsky scores, such as the glittering and percussive orchestral writing in Les Nos scored for four pianos, Carmina Burana calls for two, the idea of giving the central narrative role to the chorus, and the prominent use of insistent rhythms. But where Stravinsky achieves a certain complexity of style and idea, Orff intentionally keeps his music stripped to its bones. In Carmina Burana, he avoids complicated rhythm and harmony, several numbers subsist on a steady diet of two chords, and eschews polyphony altogether. His melodies are plain and syllabic. Occasionally, a single driving rhythmic pattern alone keeps the music going. Imagine the courage it must have taken to write a pit band umpa accompaniment in 1935. 
Despite the Spartan recipe, Orff succeeds brilliantly because of his flair for dramatic pacing, his ear for dazzling and seductive color, the energy of his rhythms, and the number of catchy tunes he composed. The result is a highly charged, expressive work of undeniable power and immediacy, claims that can be made for few pieces of serious music written in the 20th century. Orff begins and ends with that wheel of fate, a massive chorus that slowly revolves around the same relentless, unchanging pattern, building in intensity and volume as it goes. In between these two pillars, he writes three large chapters. The first celebrates springtime in a series of songs and dances. The dance music is for orchestra alone. The vocal pieces are scored for baritone solos and various combinations of full chorus and small choir, often singing in alternation. The second section moves indoors to the tavern, the exclusive province of male voices and the temple of food and drink. The saga of the roasted swan, sung by a wailing countertenor, is a marvel of exotic color. In the sensuous music of the third section, set in the courts of love, we hear the solo soprano and the voices of children for the first time. Almost all of these nine pieces are scored for different vocal forces, and the final sequence of numbers is swift and dramatic. From a rowdy, swinging chorus, number 20 for split choirs, Orff turns to the soprano, who is lost in thought as she vacillates between chastity and physical love, a measured monologue set in the soprano's lowest range. Encouraged by the baritone and choruses, she makes her choice suddenly soaring to the highest reaches of the soprano voice. The music erupts in a magnificent hymn of praise, Noble Venus Hail, and the circle starts over as the wheel of fate begins to spin once again. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Karl Orff's Carmina Burana. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.